You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy. And joining me as usual is ITK Principal David Leach. David, I trust you are well. Uh, I am well, thanks, Giles. Trust all our listeners may be well wherever they are. And uh, lots of rain here in Sydney, but you won't be noticing that because you're in, is it sunny London or sunny UK? There's, I don't think there's any such thing as sunny London, um, at least at the uh, half an hour I saw of it um, yesterday. Um, no, I'm out in the West Country now, so um, and it's looking more promising than it was yesterday. But um, but there you go, far and away, um, far and away from the uh, travails of the Australian electricity industry, but right in the middle of the UK energy crisis. It's been fascinating to see actually, David, um, almost the talk non-stop on. French television channels when I was watching the the news there was how many people were wearing um, skivvies and jumpers on set and um, uh, so they could sort of turn down the temperature of the rooms here but I come to England where the energy crisis is even worse if anything mainly because the the prices are being passed on to consumers and I'm sitting in a very nice Airbnb in the West Country and it is so hot in here we had to open the window just to cool down so um, I don't know maybe they haven't got their bills yet but um, they'll get a nasty fright when they do. Uh, yes, well, I think Liz Truss has done a great effort uh, at getting the energy crisis off the front page in the UK newspapers from what I read. But, Giles, that's not what our listeners don't want to hear about that uh, What UK politics. They want to hear about uh, what's going on in the energy world globally and in Australia. Uh, and, you know, we have an absolutely great guest uh, uh, to talk about what's happening in uh, in the in the world globally and describing the work of Irina and we'll get to that in just a moment but meantime I wanted to uh, mention to you because you've been away firstly that electricity prices have been staying up around $120 you know as we move into spring uh, average in the spot market and that's way way too high uh, even though they've been going down negative during the day from time to time so the peaking guys have still got a big run. And the other thing I think that is increasingly important to focus on is just the global scale. And I think that's becoming evident when we look around the world at the efforts that all the countries are making and then all the states in Australia with Queensland's new and wonderful target and what New South Wales is working hard to achieve and what Victoria would like to achieve as well. Uh, the fact is that it's a lot of resources, uh, many billions of dollars required over the next decade, and a lot of careful, um, careful planning and logistics uh, and urgency. So uh, I guess I'm not sure quite what the message is, but I think there's a fantastic role for the federal government to really, really get on with it. It's great we've got a federal government that understands the need, and I suppose for me, the first priority is, remains what's happening in the transmission space because we're just not going to get all the wind and the solar in any of the states that we need it without having all of that transmission. And uh, progress on transmission still seems very, very slow. And in particular, I'm keen, we haven't seen anything from the federal government yet on the rewiring Australia, uh, $20 billion. And I'd like to see some news on that pretty quickly. Yes, you know, no, I think um, um, many people would be very interested in, in what's happening there. It was interesting to see the energy efficiency consultation paper being flagged this week too. So look, that's a step, another step in the right direction. I'm not too sure how much more consultation we need to have on these things. I think people in the energy efficiency industry probably feel they've done enough submissions and things like that over the years. But, um, but at least this time it seems for a useful purpose. Look, I'd like to come back to prices later on in the podcast, um, David, because I really want to sort of um, um, find out a bit more about what you think about this. But why don't we go straight to the interview that you recorded earlier this week with um, Michael Taylor from the International Renewable Energy Agency. Michael Taylor, Senior Analyst from Irina. Thanks very much for uh, uh, talking to us here at the Energy Insiders podcast. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to be here, Dave. Um, um, thanks for having me on. 
I, I understand you're um, in Bonn in Germany. Uh, Germany has a, has a great reputation um, as part of the uh, energy vendor, but why don't you um, uh, start by talking to me a little bit about uh, what IRENA is? Sure. So the International Renewable Energy Agency was founded in 2009. We have a deceptively simple mandate, which is to accelerate in a sustainable manner all forms of renewable energy. Uh, our statute does actually give a, a hat nod uh, to energy efficiency, um, given that we understand that um, improving energy efficiency reduces overall energy consumption and helps us achieve higher shares of renewable energy in the system. So we were originally founded with 75 member states. So we're an intergovernment organization. We work for our member states, including Australia and Japan and um, Iran, the UK, you know, around the world. So we now have 168 member states. So we're actually going close to universal membership, which I think it's fair to say was not anticipated um, when we were first created. And we have a further 16 member states in Ascension. Uh, so it's a deceptively simple mandate, uh, but a very challenging job, given the issues, obviously, in the energy sector, but also the fact that we have 168 member states with very different, different demands on us. And we're actually a relatively lean organisation, so we have less core posts than member states. Um, so the pressure is on us. I think you, looking at the annual report, there's a bit over 200 employees, plus, I guess, some consultants as well. Indeed, yes. So the core, core funding is for around 85 to 90 posts, I think, at this moment. Um, so a lot of our, the analytical, you know, point of the sword comes from voluntary contributions from our member states that, that help us to do a lot more analytical work. As we've kind of grown in competence, we've developed our own areas of expertise where member states um, you know, look for us to for advice, for capacity building, um, for peer-to-peer -peer exchanges to share experiences and understand from each other um, what works, what doesn't uh, in the overall energy transition. And so I guess um, I, I'm sure when I look at energy, I, why don't we talk a little bit about what you would see as IRENA's uh, the main values or services or what you've actually achieved and accomplished? I can see it's growing, but, but, but what, what do you regard as the sort of core offerings that IRENA has that it can offer to, I guess, uh, individuals or, 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 or stakeholders in, in this global transition? Yeah, so, I mean, even though we're primarily, if you like, working for our member states, they understand the importance of, of providing particularly data and knowledge on the energy transition and the role of renewables uh, to a wider audience of stakeholders. So our, our, if you like, who we're trying to impact on is not just, say, policymakers or regulators within our member states. It's also ensuring that wider stakeholders within industry, um, the renewable industry and the energy sector in general have information and also yeah, to a, to a large extent, interested individuals, uh, because the the sector is is very wide and touches on a lot of the economy, obviously. So what we do is, you know, we do everything, if you like, from very high level messaging. So we have our World Energy Transition Outlook, which looks at the technical solutions that can get us onto a 1.5 degree pathway. Uh, we at the other end, um, we're funded to do work um, with small island developing states where we actually do uh, grid stability studies that actually look at how a grid will react to an instantaneous shock to the system and how that can recover in a matter of seconds um, or minutes. Uh, so we go, there's a wide range of, if you like, um, products that we have. Uh, that's right. And, um, and I guess they fall within um, solutions, policy, and statistics, would that be uh, three reasonable headings? Uh, I would add, yeah, under solutions, this is definitely technology, perhaps a little bit of uh, an overview of just how we're structured might help in that respect as well. So I work for the IRENA Innovation and Technology Centre in Bonn, and 
you know, we, that's, it's kind of, the, the names are kind of quite self-explanatory, but we can talk about that a bit more if it's necessary. Uh, in Abu Dhabi, which is our headquarters, we have the Knowledge Policy and Finance Centre, uh, the uh, Country Engagement and Partnerships Division, and finally the Project uh, Facilitation and Support Division. So we have, if you like, across these divisions, we have some cross-cutting efforts, obviously, uh, given the overlap, but there's a lot of focus on, on obviously, the policy side, providing uh, not just statistics, but also tools so we, we have two major statistical activities, one of which I lead on the costs and performance, the other is on the basic renewable energy statistics. But we also provide a lot of tools. So we have the Global Atlas that allows us to do work with our member states on zoning renewable energy uh, so that you can get a managed um, build out where hopefully transmission can advance ahead of project development and things like that. Uh, and you know, through to my colleagues here in Bonn have developed a flex tool to evaluate the value of, of um, particularly storage, but flexibility in general to the electricity system to understand when and what may, might work in different contexts. That's, uh, uh, you, I, I always say that uh, the, the um, decarbonisation is an endlessly interesting topic with so many fields and such a lot yeah. of value and such an important one. Um, let's talk about the area that you actually uh, uh, work in and, and, and lead, I guess, which is on the cost side of things. Um, you know, the last decade uh, up until this year has basically been a story of falling costs, but this year has been quite different. What's on your mind about costs at the moment? Yeah. What's the sort of work you're doing now? Yeah, so perhaps just for context to put some numbers on on those cost declines. So we've yeah we've been doing this now for well I've been doing it since 2012 for Irena. Um, so I've had a chance to see if you like the evolution not only in the cost but the debate that has therefore happened around that and the energy transition in general. So solar PV is obviously the poster child. The cost of electricity from utility scale solar fell by 88% between 2010 and 2021. These are for commissioned projects in those years. Uh, for concentrating solar power, it was 68%. The, coincidentally, the exact same percentage also occurred for onshore wind, and offshore wind has fallen by 60%. So they're now Solar PV and onshore wind are now routinely undercutting new fossil fuel fired power generation costs. And particularly in Europe, that's also true of offshore wind. And that's, that was prior to this price shock. Uh, so what we, we actually spent our report, so we do an annual report, renewable power generation costs in year X, so 2021, um, because we work on historical data commission done. But it was actually a month late this year because we spent a lot of extra time ensuring that we were sure that costs actually fell last year, the global weighted average cost for solar PV, offshore and onshore wind, because as you're aware, and I'm sure your listeners are aware, we've experienced quite a lot of commodity inflation. So the interesting thing for the renewable sector is that the cost metrics are lagging indicators of underlying commodity or general inflation changes. Uh, so it takes time for steel and aluminium and polysilicon price increases to flow through into equipment prices and then again into the commissioning of projects which have longer lead times. So, so Michael, cost is not uh, the same as value and that's something I want to come back to. Sure. But uh, if we were to, um, at the moment, when we look at the LCOE, which is a levelised cost of energy or electricity in this case, which is the same as what uh, a traditional economist would, I think, call the long-run marginal cost or, uh, or the LRMC, I think the ranking at the moment still is um, onshore wind as the lowest at the end of 2021 and then solar and then offshore wind. Uh, is, is that right? Yeah, so the global weighted average from our data for onshore wind was about 3.3 US cents per kilowatt hour and for the projects commissioned in 2021. Uh, large share of the projects were commissioned in 
um, China, but also in areas uh, with excellent wind resources. So um, very competitive at the moment. So there's, there's quite a range in our data. Sorry, and this, this global average, sorry, it's just the nerdy analyst in me. Is, is that a um, equally weighted average or a volume weighted average? It's a capacity weighted. So it's based on the capacity, the megawatts. Uh, right. So we could have weighted so, it. So what happens in China has more influence, uh, not because it's got a lot more capacity installed than, than say, uh, um, Australia, even though Australia might have unit costs that were actually competitive or lower or higher. Yeah. So what we do, I mean, this is this is a metric that we use to, if you like, for high level messaging. It, it's kind of, it's interesting, but, it, you know, it doesn't reflect anyone's local reality. So we obviously produce the, the, the country level data as well for everyone to consume. But after onshore wind, we had solar PV at around 4.8 cents per kilowatt hour and offshore wind was a little bit funny this year or last year, sorry, because China added 17 gigawatts out of 21. So they really took off. Uh, and so that was about 7.5 cents. In Europe, it's a little bit cheaper than that now because they're a bit further advanced in the development. And um, uh, just finishing on this particular little topic, I noticed looking at a couple of the graphs on the IRENA site, uh, that in fact PPA prices tend to undercut uh, the actual uh, LCOE uh, to be a little bit lower. And, uh, you know, PPA prices may only reflect stuff that's going to be built in a few... I mean, it's quite complicated understanding yes. exactly what they involve. So perhaps you could just talk a little bit about how much I should pay attention to PPA prices yeah. when, when I see them. Sure. So we, as a complement to the, so our, all our cost data, I should add, um, our point of difference or value added is that we collect uh, the project level installed cost data and capacity factor to build up a, a very detailed bottom up, what we think is a real world estimate of the cost. We have to make assumptions about O&M uh, and um, particularly the cost of capital. Uh, but these are, you know, these are as, if you like, as good as we think we can get. Uh, and so we also started collecting the PPA data because we found it interesting. It's another cost metric, first of all, and it tells us a little bit more. At that time, we were assuming a fixed cost of capital, a weighted average cost of capital. Uh, and it started to tell us a little bit if our assumption was maybe diverging from what the market was seeing. And so for PV, there was quite now. It's not a one-to-one -one mapping. So that if you like, the countries that, you, that disclose PPAs don't necessarily represent the, if you like, the share, the same share of new capacity installed each year. So there's, a, there's if you like, a spatial perhaps um, shift, but there's also it's, a time it's, shift. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not necessarily the same uh, exactly. underlying population. Exactly. Yeah. So at a global level. But what we saw was that particularly for solar PV, it was coming consistently under uh, our LCO estimate. So actually, over the last two years, we did a big effort to survey um, stakeholders in the industry on the actual project, uh, well, sorry, the technology and country-specific cost of capital. So we went to utilities, project developers, financial institutions, banks, uh, and surveyed them. And for the first time this year, we've fully integrated the results of that. So, uh, but we haven't had a chance to, to do an analysis with the, whether the PPA results now line up more closely as a result of that. Um, but for, so, forget, Forgetting about the PPA results then, I, I, sorry, you, everyone else who listens to this will be totally bored when I talk about the weighted average cost of capital, but it's an <laughs> absolutely favorite uh, uh, thing that, uh, and it matters a hugely in, in the uh, overall price that people pay for renewable electricity because it's mostly uh, a capital cost business. Indeed. Uh, and that's why I like So talk to me about the cost of capital. Do you use the same estimate at uh, the same weighted average cost of capital, which I'll hereafter call WAC, yep. uh, for, uh, across technologies and across geographies, or, or does it vary on either one or, or both of those dimensions? Uh, so what I, so perhaps useful, historically what we did was assume uh, a fixed weighted average cost of capital 
across technologies. It only varied based on country. And to simplify, we just assumed 7.5% in uh, the OECD in China and 10% elsewhere. That was probably not bad in 2010, or well, perhaps say seven or eight years ago even. Uh, but as I said, with this PPA data emerging, it was poor. So to complement the survey which we did, which only ended up covering, I think, uh, around 35 countries, um, what we did was develop a benchmark model with um, you know, publicly available financial information around um, country risk premiums and equity premiums and so on. And what we've done is use the survey results to calibrate that benchmark model where we had country level data. Uh, and, but that benchmark model covers 100 countries, uh, so virtually all of new capacity additions, uh, and has a differentiated cost of capital for solar PV, onshore and offshore wind. So in this year's... Just, just, yeah. Go on, sorry, you've got just the ranking, or I'm just interested in the numbers now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so what we see there is, so now we have the ability, so, and it's particularly timely, obviously, because inflation has just, you know, come in and kicked our butts in the last 18 months. And so we're starting to see interest rates rise. So what we can do now is for next year's report, uh, we can update the baseline information on risk-free rates um, and, and have new cost of capital, which takes into account the rising, um, yeah, cost. So, so Michael, I, in, 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 in my he uh, head, I tend to think of solar as having the lowest cost of capital because it's uh, got the uh, faster build, lower risk in, in, in lower yep. operating costs and so on, and then onshore wind and then offshore wind. Is, is that your ranking? In general, yes, but there are exceptions to that. So that was what was interesting about this experience. Um, so there are a number of markets where there's very little differentiation between PV and onshore wind, um, essentially probably within the margin of error, statistically speaking. Uh, there are other markets where there are significant risk premiums either one way or another, actually, towards solar PV or, or onshore wind. And it predominantly depends on the maturity of the market. So if local financial institutions are not familiar with solar PV, even though they might know or understand internationally that it's less risk, uh, there may still be a risk premium involved for them. So, All right, let's not get too bogged down in that. <laughs> There's a new report coming. Uh, we could have an entire discussion on that one day, if you like. We could, and but our readers would have gone to sleep long, long ago. Uh, our listeners, uh, um, if I just move on to the other technologies, I want to talk about transmission and risk and stuff mm. because it's quite a big... Transmission is a very big topic in Australia at the moment and I think it will be around the, the world as, as things go on and may already be. Uh, but let me just talk about <coughs> batteries. Uh, there's a sort of lot of debate, uh, you know, about whether there's enough raw materials for batteries and you know, we all know lithium and prices have gone through the sky. Um, what, what's happening to battery costs, uh, both at ut utility and, I guess, at small scale, and, and what's the growth like in that market? Yeah, so uh, batteries are, I mean, the important thing to understand with batteries for the electricity system is we're piggy, piggybacking off what's happening in the electric vehicle market. So that, if you like, the economies of scale and manufacturing for batteries are coming from the electric vehicle market. And so that's driving down costs. Obviously, we've had the uptick in, well, uptick, the seismic increase in um, lithium prices. So the raw costs have increased, but there's constant R&D going on to reduce the materials intensities of batteries because that's part of the, the way you get to lower cost in any event. Uh, and so but what we've seen is definitely there's been an uptick. Um, and so people like BNEF have reported this. For stationary batteries, because there's a, a, the battery pack costs are higher than for electric vehicles, they're not quite as price sensitive um, as electric vehicle battery packs. So there's a, a higher cost and so a, large, you know, a smaller percentage increase in, in the total cost. So 
at least here in Germany, where we have good data for behind the meter battery storage, there was a definite uptick in 2021 actually already. Uh, and in, in 2022, the early data we had was not that it was continuing to increase. So we don't know whether that's the inability to pass through the additional costs um, or, or whether that's just a delayed impact of the price increases. We'll have to wait and see for the data to come through. The interesting thing about no, storage is gone, with the costs coming down, we're starting to see it solve some of these other problems in the energy sector, right? Like you said, so where there are transmission constraints um, or grid connection issues, we're starting to see more hybrid projects with storage to be able to ensure they get online earlier and they can provide additional benefits. If once the business case is made on, on that basis, they can provide additional revenue streams depending on on, on, on the market, obviously. So storage is going to be increasing. What we're seeing actually is that usually if there's a blockage in the energy transition, we're starting to see solutions come in that we hadn't really anticipated doing that job, but allow us to, if you like, like a, like a river, flow around the obstacle and get to where we need to be. And, and um, I guess Irina doesn't really get into the forecasting business, do you? Well, we have a long-term pathway for the 1.5 degree. And in, in terms of the technology outlook, we do a little bit, uh, but it's not consistently funded by our member states, uh, unfortunately. Um, but we try to keep up, obviously, with what, what's happening. Um, but we don't publish regularly on that. Um, but we keep that in. That's all part of, if you like, the... Um, the background. So if, if I was to ask uh, uh, for your opinion, uh, as someone that studies at uh, costs all the time, and I was to say that if I was to look out to say 2025, mm. which is, you know, like three years from today, and we were to run through uh, solar, onshore, offshore wind and, and, and batteries, mm. where would you see costs in percentage as a percentage of 2021 data for yeah. each of those technologies? Um, so it's a really uncertain time, actually. So I, I'm not sure that we have a really good handle on that. Uh, I, I'm asking I'm asking for your view. Yeah. Like I'm a financial analyst. I'm an analyst, stockbroking investor, and that's the sort of thing a fund manager would ask me. Yeah, sure. sure I sure. mean, there's no... I'm okay. not going to... Um... Solar, okay, so solar PV installed costs, will, in my opinion, will probably drop another 10 to 15% by 2025, at a minimum. Uh, China is ramping up polysilicon production. There is firm plans for the equivalent of just under one terawatt of annual production capacity of polysilicon that could become online in China by 2025. Uh, just in the next year, 18 months, we might see a doubling of the polysilicon production capacity globally. So poly, and the main driver of cost increase for, for PV modules has been that polysilicon price. So it will return to more normal levels. We'll continue to see the module efficiency increase, which reduces materials intensity. Uh, and, and again, just the manufacturing economies of scale. Onshore wind is a little bit more tricky. Um, so here, Things could stay flat for another couple of years before costs start to come down. So the materials price increases we saw for wind turbines, uh, and we talk about this in the report, probably only a half of the materials cost increase was passed through in prices up till, say, um, Q3 this year. So there's a bit more um, cost inflation that needs to be absorbed, and manufacturers need to rebuild their margins. Uh, and the situation is a little bit different for offshore wind. Uh, there, essentially, what happens to steel will be the big driver, just because of the intensity, the, the, the very large quantities of steel that go into it. So onshore wind may stay high for another couple of higher or than it was in 2021 um, for a couple of years, and then start to fall again. So maybe 5 to 10% by 2025. Offshore wind, it depends on the market. Um, in Europe, the cost will come down as predicted, essentially by the PPAs, 
Um, so we get in the offshore market in Europe, at least we get a fairly good understanding of where costs are going from the PPAs because they match quite closely to what we would consider a, an LCOE equivalent. Uh, so that's kind of locked in. We'll wait and see if there's anybody complaining in two or three years because commodity prices are still, still too high and looking to renegotiate. And, ba and batteries? Batteries, uh, yeah, much more difficult to tell because of lithium pricing. Uh, and it's going to take a little bit longer for capacity to come online. So I suspect lithium um, battery prices might be flat for the next two to three years and then drop maybe five or 10% quite rapidly that, again. That's great. And um, we, we haven't, I mean, I don't want to talk about hydrogen in, in this topic, it's in this discussion. It's a big topic, but it's still in the future for me uh, uh, in sure. terms of what matter, what we need to do in the next three or four years exactly. in terms of actually decarbonising the world. It's not uh, not anti-green anti hydrogen, it's just I'm interested in what, what's going to happen in the nearer future. Um, in terms of offshore wind, uh, Europe, un I think, understands very well what can be achieved there. But it seems to me that Asia is the major uh, consumer of coal these days in total. Um, and, um, you know, Asia has been slower to get really going on the decarbonisation path, mm. whether I look at India or China or Japan. And um, part of this really, I think, is about, you know, just not having access to the land area for, or maybe even the wind resource in some cases. But I mean, every, everyone will have different views about it. But uh, uh, what do you see as the potential for offshore wind in Asia? Do you have a view about that? Yeah. So as you kind of rightly highlighted, there are particular markets where it will be very important. So uh, and we've well, Vietnam, for instance, is now a major market. They've got almost a, a gigawatt of installed capacity, um, which has come online very quickly. Japan, I think, has the biggest potential. Uh, anything they do onshore is, is expensive, <laughs> um, whether it's solar PV or onshore wind. And the onshore wind market is essentially a, a hobby market. Um, PV is much more at scale in Japan. So given that they have uh, quite deep offshore um, seabeds relatively close to the, to the shore, I think the big opportunity for them is in floating offshore. And so this is probably, you know, still five years behind where we are with fixed bottom. Uh, and obviously in China, you've got all of the, if you like, the the industrial and population concentration around the coast and the yeah the wind onshore wind resource there is quite poor so offshore wind can and is playing an increasing role and we'll see that there uh, in other parts of, of asia it's a little bit more challenging because of the value proposition uh, and it may make more sense for them to to actually do more with pv um, and onshore wind at least to start with but the potential is is very large given the population concentration. Now, here in Australia, we're, because we're relatively advanced, uh, our national electricity market might only be 200 ter uh, terawatt hours, but we're up to 25% wind and solar already. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we see a pathway to 50, 60, 70, 80%. Uh, uh, but... Uh, so I guess the issue I, I see more and more is about transmission and how much it's needed and how long it uh, takes to be developed mm. and the amount of uh, what, what we call social license around that. When, 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 when Irina is looking at its policy advice, I mean, and if you were to take a country like Japan, uh, which is fairly low on the renewable energy stakes at the moment, and you were trying to tell them what the best way to do it is and the order of things, <laughs> this is a, what, what, what would you say? Well, I mean, what we try to do is actually work with countries, our member states, to understand what their goals are and, uh, you know, have a better understanding of their institutional and regulatory framework and if you like some of the, the, the cultural issues, right, that then frame 
the domestic debate. And then, yeah, I mean, so there is, then we get a better understanding of how we can help them talking about, you know, the, the social and economic and environmental benefits to get that kind of social license. Uh, well, what, what is often lacking, I think, and this is a personal opinion, not an Irene opinion, is that governments don't do a good job of having a debate about what the, what the pathway could be and what are the trade-offs, right? So, um, you know, it, once you have those kind of debates, then in a kind of a, a systematic way, then it makes it easier, I think, for people to understand the trade-offs and make the policy decisions they need to do. Uh, but obviously, in any of these processes, there are uh, all of the technologies we're talking about have different timelines to bring online, and transmission is probably, you know, the biggest bugbear there, right? So you need the lead time for the transmission development is the highest. So this is where our work around zoning instance comes in so identifying re zones where you can you know put in place the policy framework to support renewables deployment with at least the plan that there'll be the transmission capacity there once they start coming online to actually make ensure that that can be taken off and into the consuming areas so that it's more about you know understanding the sequencing and the goals that the country is trying to achieve and then understanding if you like how their current institutional and regulatory structure affect what needs to be done and what's best practice in that respect so you know where our, our value added is kind of more at a, at a higher level if you see what i mean uh, i do see what you mean yeah. uh, and let's stick with these high level uh sort of things maybe with an example my uh, intuition, which I often uh, get criticised for, uh, is that basically this kind of this debate between people who favour solar and that being produced close to consumption and which therefore needs a lot of batteries and storage and wind, which is often located where the wind is strong, which is often not where the consumption is and therefore needs a lot more transmission. Uh, Firstly, is that a, a fair way, do you think, to at the broadest level to, to think about it? I, for many countries, yes. There are lots of exceptions to that, um, to be honest, uh, which don't get the kind of coverage because they, they're not countries that tend to have these problems, right? So it's the, it's the problems you hear about rather than the successes, if you see what I mean. Uh, but, I do see what yeah, you mean. Uh, so the... So what happens there, this gets back to this idea about having, you know, a, a, an open and honest debate where all the stakeholders understand the trade-offs involved, right? So, you know, if there is, you know, strong opposition to new transmission lines, then, then the stakeholders need to know, and consumers, they need to know that, okay, the end result of that is that we're going to, in this case, we're going to end up, in our estimation, with a more expensive solution. We can still do it because we have all the tools in the toolkit, but this is not the optimal solution for us and it's gonna create additional costs. You know, so is this really what you want? Um, and, and I think that's the conversation that doesn't tend to be had, right? So it's not a particularly pleasant conversation. It's not one I think politicians wants to perhaps institute all of the time, because um, it's a hard discussion um, and it requires the thought, you know, getting all the stakeholders together and, and, and doing this. I just, I, you know, uh, I come from politics and I don't think politics mind hard discussions, actually. I think they spend their entire careers in hard discussions because yeah. that's what politicians do and don't get enough credit for is making hard decisions, you know, because there are always risks and, and rewards for every constituency and in every decision. But let's not get bogged down in politicians. Uh, politics. I always think historically of Texas when maybe things were easier as, an, as, a, as a region that's done uh, ERCOT, if you like, yeah. uh, that's done transmission well. Can you, uh, what, what other, uh, can you point, do you have uh, any other examples, perhaps more recent, of, of countries that's, or regions uh, that have done a good job on transmission development ahead of time? How's China gone, for instance, there? Well, I mean, China, 
well, I mean, yeah, okay. China's a very complicated example. So um, there's lots going on uh, and it's quite dysfunctional. Uh, so it's probably not one where we have time to discuss. I mean, I think the interesting examples are, as well are places like Chile, right, where there's excellent resources in different parts of the country, uh, but the interconnection now is starting to become an issue and they're now having to adjust right to that new reality uh, and they've also started to to look more at procuring not just going back to when you mentioned value not procuring just whenever available but also uh, you know requesting generation and a generation profile even if it's a little bit loose uh, to prioritize peak hours so somewhere like Chile is is very interesting and probably doesn't get enough credit for what they're doing, I would say. Um, there's Uruguay as well, which is you know, almost completely eliminated fossil fuels based on the back of admittedly high hydropower share. Uh, so so there are examples, but I think in Western countries, you know, these large civil engineering projects, which you know cross a lot of land, are just are just difficult and problematic. But I think. You know, we're not going to change the, the narrative on that unless we have these kind of you know, more broader discussions and, and stakeholder engagement. Um, and for instance, you know, I think in Germany, for instance, this, this conversation was kind of had a decade or so ago, but things have changed um, and it needs, you know, there needs to be a, a new discussion. Yeah, uh, and I guess, you know, the offshore wind people always claim, and possibly correctly, that, that uh, you can avoid a lot of these transmission issues by burying it all under the ocean, <laughs> uh, it is, where no one complains. Yeah, I mean, so this is, I mean, you know, I gave the analogy, right, of, you know, a river washing around an obstacle. So this, this is possible, right? But the, the question is, how much extra cost does that add? How much delay does it add when we're running out of time, right? And I think the, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, and I think the other thing I would add is just that, you know, the world you know, in terms of fossil fuel pricing, the world has changed, right? So we're not going back to the old assumption that fossil fuel prices are cheap. You can't get away with that argument anymore. Well, I I I I, I wonder about that because all of us forecasters tend to forecast what's happening. Uh, today into the future yeah. with a trend, a small trend up or down, do you know what I mean, depending on your inclination. Yeah. I don't want to get too too bogged down on that. But I, it does seem to me that one of the big uh, ideas that's gained more and more currency in the last few years is this idea about renewable energy zones uh, and, and you know, focusing the renewable energy into a particular area. Um, uh, can Do you have any quickly, because we are coming to the end now, yeah of any countries that are sort of well progressed on that and doing a good job in your view? Well, we're working with a lot of our member states in Africa, actually. So we've been very successful at helping the, they have power pools in different re, you know, sub-regions of Africa and working with them uh, to do this kind of, you know, systematic sequenced plan. So we're working with them, helping them define rene renewable energy zones that kind of, it's a trade-off, right? distance from population centers and existing transmission infrastructure and the quality of the resource uh, so and I mean to be honest you know in the past of course um, you know Texas and ERCOT was actually quite good at this so they you know created these corridors for, for transmission and, and renewable energy development but things have just moved so dramatically um, there uh, they have so much capacity now, it's becoming an issue because they haven't kept up with their original good effort. Um, but it's it's an area, if you like, that that needs to be, I think, part of, if you like, your overall policy solution because it gives this clarity on the necessity of transmission um, and also the trade-offs. Michael, I think we've uh, come to the end of, uh, of what we can do in, in, in one go. I've really enjoyed this discussion. I take very much on board your idea of having a robust, uh, high-level, serious debate uh, uh, about the uh, pluses and minuses of the various policy choices. I like to think that we have that debate and that even the energy side contributes to it a little bit. 
Um, um, so I, I, I wish you and Irina all the best success and thanks very much again for, uh, for joining us. Yeah, absolute pleasure to be on. It's always an, uh, a, a delight to have a, a free raging conversation on a topic that is obviously close to my heart and, and my professional work. And that was Michael Taylor from the International Renewable Energy Agency. We're certainly sort of talking there about just the sort of the scale of the problem, which is what you were talking about at the start of the, uh, start of the podcast, you know, the pressure on pricing, wind and solar. I was just kind of interested about the, um, you know, the time that it takes some, some of these sort of inputs to come through on the pricing thing. What are the big takeouts for you, David? Uh, I suppose the takeouts is just the uh, size and scale of IRENA and it's a great resource uh, with a lot of data and I guess Michael's, uh, it's great to see a Kiwi living in Germany have, doing that kind of work and I guess just the, 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 you know, his guesses at where the cost reductions are, are coming from and how fast they're going to be, I, I, I'm sort of getting a sense that we're, you know, the, obviously costs have gone up this year for just about everything but uh, I, I kind of feel we're not seeing the cost down. Maybe I've just been pessimistic uh, at the same rate as I, I would like it to see. Um, uh, and, and, you know, so there's going to be a limit to how low we can get our energy prices. And I guess just the, uh, you know, this, this global challenge, the point I've already mentioned that uh, there's a lot going on in China. There's a lot going on in the United States. Uh, there's obviously a lot going to be going on in Europe even faster. Uh, and uh, Australia is progressing and relatively at the forefront of a lot of things and we just and we've got a lot more to do. Quite so. Look, I'm just kind of interested in the um, in, in the prices that you mentioned about the Australian spot market. And I've been looking for the last couple of weeks because I have been overseas. It sounds like the sort of the gas generators are still having sort of primacy over the formation of the price, which I guess is to be expected. But what, what, what exactly are the details of what's happening? Why why is it staying so high? And is the answer to actually reducing these things sit as simple as just building more wind, solar, and storage, or is there something else that we can do in the meantime? I mean, I know in Europe they kind of discussing complicated things like splitting the markets so you have like a wind and solar market um, and then like a firming market which is kind of you know sort of like a, a, a separate thing but that's complex um, have you had any thoughts about that David uh, no well I, I do think uh, you know pr price is the cure to price as we said a lot of times uh, more supply is just what's needed at the moment uh, also I think um, actually demand uh, has been up a little bit uh, this year and you know we've had a very cold and uh, relatively cold and wet time of it There's still massive amount of uh, floods actual coal production i think remains very restricted um, as far as last time i looked australian coal exports were actually down this year despite the sensational prices that were on offer which tells you how difficult the physical production actually is um, and obviously the gas price is is is, is very very high uh, we're getting a few more little bits of pieces of batteries and stuff. But basically, we've got a lot of big targets at the moment, but not at much actual delivery of new projects. The Caban wind farm, sure, it was uh, energised, and there's a few little things getting going. But we need the gigawatts of, uh, of new stuff coming through uh, rather than the, even the tens or the hundreds of megawatts. Well, exactly, yes. We, we, need, we need some of these new projects to actually sort of start building. Um, I mean, it was interesting to see the first solar component of the Port Augusta Renewable Energy Park, which is Australia's largest hybrid, actually start production um, last, well, this week, I think it was, um, Telstra signing up to the McIntyre um, Wind Farm, which is Australia's biggest wind farm. Um, but these things have been kind of underway for some time now, or at least not known about. So as you say, let's get some new projects on the road, but uh, not quite that simple. David, before we wrap up, is there anything else that do you bursting to inform the reader or the listener? Uh, no, I don't think uh, there is that much uh, that's brand new, really, as I say, at the week. We're in a sort of holding phase now, waiting for, I suppose, the next New South Wales tender. Queensland government's announced it's uh, not only its roadmap, but uh, the, the individual companies have announced some projects. But, you know, that we're just not still not building enough at, at the moment, either of archaeology. I mean, for instance, we can talk about AGL, which has announced the closure of Loyang, uh, or bringing forward the closure of Loyang A to 2035. But Loyang B, I mean, uh, can still get its coal from the Loyang A mine. That, that It has an irrevocable right to that coal for as long as it wants to keep running. 
And I suppose the real point about AGL is that um, they're talking about five gigawatts of uh, new production by 2030. Um, I'd like to see similar sorts of things coming from uh, Origin and Energy Australia. Uh, once those guys really get on the bandwagon, they're the kind of link between the government targets, in all honesty, and the customers because they own the retail market and you're not going to get... Uh, they have to sign up for the program and come on board to, for it. We're really going to get pace and then we need to, as I said, to get the transmission built. And so still a lot of big pieces of coordination to get done right. Yeah, no, that's right. Yes, yeah, an interesting thing about the AGL. I mean, they haven't got a shortage of projects to choose from in, um, in, in the whole lineup there. Just briefly on that, um, just the timing that they're setting. I mean, 2035 for Loyang A, that is not actually as quick as the um, ISP, uh, set change scenario from the ISP. They're suggesting 2032. So it looks like there's still some room to move there. Um, and also Bayswater um, is a couple of years early, but that could be gone much earlier too. Have you had any thoughts about what the ultimate timing will be? No, I haven't. Uh, and as I, we, we just, you know, at the moment, I think everyone's ready. For, I think that's really the signal is that the coal's ready to leave the system. But no, actually, nobody really wants it to happen tomorrow because uh, uh, nobody I know, because there's just not yeah. enough new supply to replace it. <laughs> In the end, we do have to keep the lights on. Uh, <laughs> who'd have thought? Who'd have thought? Well, no, that's no, and, and, and it's a point well made that, um, yeah, that just underlies the, the need to actually start building this stuff. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Okay, David, look, I think that's probably a wrap for this week. Thank you very much for doing this interview with Michael Taylor from Marina. Um, thank you very much, Michael Taylor, for joining us. Um, thanks to all the listeners out there for um, downloading this podcast. Uh, we do appreciate it. Um, we're certainly getting a lot of um, downloads at the moment, and we're um, very grateful for that. And, of course, thanks to our sponsors, Evergen and Pylon, for your continuing and ongoing support. And, David, um, we'll endeavour to be back again this time next week. Charles, and, um, I just thought before you go, you mentioned our sponsor, Evergen, and I note the CEO, Ben Hutt, has been uh, in, in the United States attending a conference with over 5,000 delegates, 10 concurrent streams on global decarbonisation, uh, he said, you know, you, you couldn't possibly, there was a fantastic amount of interesting content, but you couldn't even get to it all because 10 concurrent sessions. Like I said, there's an amazing amount going on. And I think the main thing is to, that Australia has to be sufficiently organised to, to actually get the wind turbines, to get the solar panels. We, 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 we have to be, execute very well from here on. I, you know, what, we, we've set the intention. The, the will is there. It's the, it's the execution now on which we, everyone's going to be judged. Good on you. Thanks very much, David. Thanks once again to everyone. Thanks to our sponsors. And that's it for this week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant generating significant value for consumers, network operators, and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost, and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.